Well, welcome to this edition of On the Mic with Mike. Uh, today, we're here on the beautiful campus of University of British Columbia, uh, and we'll be talking with uh, Aaron McCulloch, uh, a professor here who was actually one of the Gold Leaf Award winners uh, at the CIHR Awards this past spring. Aaron does some fascinating research, which we're going to get an opportunity to hear about very shortly. Now, as you remember, these episodes are really designed for us to have a little bit of a conversation uh, with uh, investigators across this country, get a bit of a sense for what makes them tick, why they're doing this in the first place, how they got here, and maybe where they see where things are going. So come on and join me. We're about to have a great conversation. Well, as I said, uh, this, on this episode of On the Mic with Mike, Aaron, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, for discussion. As I said, we're here at the University of British Columbia uh, today where you're a professor. Mm -hmm. uh, Isn't it beautiful? What a lovely actually, campus on a day like this. Huh? It's gorgeous. I don't know how much people can see the scenery we've got behind us, but it's like, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. How do you do this? How do you work here? Uh, I think it helps, actually. Yeah. It helps with a view like this. And also we can walk during the daytime. So yeah, we do okay. some walking meetings as well. Yeah. So listen, this is all about exploring your history and your career um, and such. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah. So I was thinking about that today. I'm, I think we're at 15 years uh, since we set up our team, which is called the Collaborative Research Team to Study Psychosocial Issues in Bipolar Disorder. And it was set up uh, provincially here in, in Vancouver uh, quite some time ago now. And I was looking back, thinking that uh, a lot's changed since that time. We were a small, provincially focused team um, designed to really to do two things. First of all, to help improve health and quality of life and people who are living with a condition called bipolar disorder. And then also, as importantly, to create a new way of doing research hand in hand with people with bipolar disorder specifically. Okay. So, so, so there's a lot of discussion right now about you know, working with, it seems like this new concept, right, <laughs> of patient-centered research. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like you were at that long before. Well, actually, a lot of people have been at that for a long yeah. time. I think, you know, language changes, the way that we describe okay. different orientations to research changes. Actually, if you look back historically, involving people in research has been done for a long time in participatory medicine, participatory action research, um, mm. what we would call community-based work. And so there's a long legacy and history of working with communities and working with people with life experiences to shape research. So patient-orientated research, patient-orientated research isn't new per se, um, but I think we're doing it more thoroughly and more thoughtfully now than we have in the past. How so? Well, we have a lot more we have a lot more funding that acknowledges the importance of doing research and knowledge translation hand in hand with the people who live with health conditions. Right, <laughs> Sounds like right. a bit of a no-brainer, doesn't yeah. it? But of course there's a you know there's a huge impact of funding agencies, of the people who support the process of research prioritizing that piece and creating systems and structures so that that research happens, um, right. so that it's prioritized for funding. Um, and so we really, it's, you know, it's increasingly hard to get research funded now without explicitly explaining how people um, who are impacted by health conditions and health research will be involved in either thinking about the research that should be done, doing it, or at least moving the, re the results of it into right. action. So we're kind of, I mean, we're here in Vancouver, 
Um, and you know, you can't be a Canadian and not be aware of a lot of what's happening in mental health yeah. here, right? And what's sure. sort of driving that. So in the time of your career that you've been, been working with this, what, mm-hmm. what's changed? Have you mm-hmm. seen? No, I wonder if, I, certainly we're talking about mental health more. Yeah. That's clear to everybody. And that's not Vancouver-centric. That's international, yeah. that we're having conversations more and really trying to address stigma and reduce negative public attitudes towards mental illness and what it means to mm. live with mental illness. So those conversations are certainly happening. They're driven by major international initiatives. Um, but, you know, I think that we won't have got there until there are re- there's really good data on some more discrete outcomes like, you know, our discrimination levels mm. reducing for people with mental illness, you know, are the structures that we're creating in society shaped to be as inclusive as possible? So, you know, I feel like it's important that we're talking more about mental health conditions and innovative treatments and that those pieces are happening in research. But, you know, I also feel like we have a long, long way to go still. Now, you were a Gold Leaf recipient of the award from CNHR. So congratulations. Thank you. For certain. Um, You made a, a really clear point about your team. Mm. Right, that this was not just you, that this was a whole team. Can you talk a little bit about that? The team is the essence of what we do. You know, I I think I'm an okay researcher. I think I'm Mm. a, a, you know, a decent researcher. I'm certainly kind of a jack of all trades. I can do lot, use lots of different methods, and have a fairly big picture orientation. But I think you know, always used to downplay this, but one of my skills as a researcher is in creating environments and ways for people to work together where they can do things mm-hmm. differently and perhaps do more, you know, more than they would be able to do individually. And so that's really what I, we've been able to specialize in, in Crest BD is to create a team of people who's cross-disciplinary, that's not just psychiatry or psychology or occupational therapy or social work or lived experience. It's the, it's the nexus, it's the sweet spot between those types of expertise, mm-hmm. I think, where we can really catalyze change and impact. And so, you know, it's a huge honor to get the Gold Leaf Prize for patient mm-hmm. engagement. It was just massive for us as a team. Um, but there was some points of awkwardness in that for me as an individual receiving it, because I really, I feel like I create, I've helped create the space for that right, team right. to flourish. But I never view that work as my own or take ownership of that piece. Right. You know, it's interesting, this concept of, you know, team research and, and how that works. You know, I was giving a talk a couple of years ago. And... People were asking me about this this sort of interdisciplinary team-based research. Mm-hmm. And I said at the time that, you know, I don't remember ever waking up one day and going, oh my God, I wish I was on a team doing research, right? Whereas as scientists coming forward, we're often trained as individual entities. Yeah. That and then if we work in a team, that's kind of like, well, nice that that happened. Yeah. Or but was there a time in your life when you realized that to achieve the goals that you wanted to in this, you would have to be working in a team? Or was it yeah. natural for you? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, because I think, it, I think it's changing for more junior mm. scientists and researchers. But when I grew up as a researcher, we got a very clear message, which was around carving your individual piece of space, right. about showing you could do something in a way that was different from everybody else. It's highly competitive. Um, and we weren't culturing and supporting or promoting teams in, in the same way. Um, that's different now. It's different for funding, for a mm. start. We fund teams we recognize the value of teams in health research in a way that we didn't before and so that makes a huge difference Um, but i very clearly remember the point where i realized i needed a group of people to do this i was interviewing a woman 
who I've worked with now for 15 years, who lives with bipolar disorder. We did a long interview about the factors that affected her quality of life. It was right at the beginning of my career. And I remember being kind of terrified at the end of the interview. It was very, very clear to me that I could not do this well by myself. And it would be ridiculous Mm. to try and do that. And it wouldn't be as effective or as impactful as it needed to be. So the team piece, the interdisciplinary piece, where we could use different methods, different scientific methods was important, Mm. but it was absolutely clear, crystal clear to me at that point, that lived experience of health conditions had to be at the center of that. Um, And believe me, there have been so many times where we've started on a Mm. track as researchers in the group and worked with community, and they've just really kind of blown what we're doing out of the water and said, no, that's not going to work on the ground. So we've saved so much time and effort and really pinpointed what we're doing so much so much better because of that collaborative approach. So in getting into this field, how did this come Mm. about? Um, it came about through it came about through a small piece of funding for the development of the team from the Michael Smith Foundation mm-hmm. here in BC, um, and that started us off in sort of twenty, you know, twenty sorry, two thousand five, and then shortly after that, um, CIHR was providing funding for knowledge translation teams, and we right. secured um, the, you know three years of funding to grow from a provincial network into a national network. Learned a lot as part of that process. Um, and then really kind of embedded that teamwork approach into, you know, more traditional kinds of operating grants. And, mm-hmm. yeah. So even going back earlier than that, right? So a lot of mm-hmm. people I talk to, right? There's a, you know, when did you like wake up one day as a teenager and go, oh, oh you mean God, me. Yeah, <laughs> me as a researcher. You. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like how, this is a bug, right? So when did you get it? Oh, it is a bug, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, I was headstrong as a teenager. I think, you know, looking back now, one of the reasons that research suits me so well is that it gives you a huge amount of latitude and control and space Mm -hmm. for creativity. Um, I don't know that I fell out of bed one morning and realized I was going to become a researcher. I published my first paper as an undergraduate in Manchester in the UK. So I was about 20, 22 at that point. So maybe maybe it was always in the cards for me. but, uh, you know, I came to UBC in my first postdoc. Research for me just made sense, my personality style. And I still, at this point, feel so privileged and lucky to have a career like this that gives me this latitude, this ability to work with smart, creative, fun people. I have a huge amount of fun yeah. in this job. So, so that's interesting. You know, it's, there's so many people I talk to, particularly young people, right? And they're thinking about this career, and they ask, you know, what's it been like for you? He said, I've had the best career. Like, I love it. It's just, they went, right, come on, right? Nobody has that, right? Yeah. But it's true. Right? So what is there about this that, like, if you had to give it up tomorrow, you would absolutely regret some part of it. What would that be? The people. Yeah. The interactions with people. Um, yeah, I would, miss, I would miss that element. And at this stage of my career, um, sort of mid-career, late mid-career okay. at this point, depending on your <laughs> measuring stick. It's getting to work with the trainees. You know, yeah. there is something about, at one point I would have said that I was, you know, the, one of the people in the world specializing in studying quality of life in this condition, bipolar right. disorder. Um, and then a PhD student who was based in Australia at the time, Emma Morton, focused her entire PhD on that. She runs rings around me theoretically at this point. She's actually moved from Australia now um, to join us here at UBC. Okay. And that, you know, that experience, that's the way it should be, right? right? That you're actually 
outflanked just appropriately by your, your trainees coming through. Right. And that ability at this stage of my career to work with those smart, younger scientists right. coming up is wonderful. What's the future of that look like? That your kind of your research program you've got it now so you, mm. you must have a, a somewhat down the road goal so oh, we, we did this well we did this years ago and that we've had a consultation session with community it was called what hap what if Aaron's hit by a bus it's an important thing when you think about sustainability <laughs> right. right you know we could all be hit by a bus any day we need to think about the way different ways and methods for keeping right. the science going so it's not dependent on one person or one voice for that right. and so at that point we changed the leadership out for the network so that there's another scientist or two other scientists one of whom lives with bipolar disorder and you know i want to culture the trainees and the younger researchers in the group to take that baby on, to right. take it to the next generation. I'm not precious about this. You know, it's something that needs to be carried forward. But what do you think, what are the questions they'll be asking? And what are the tools mm. that you think they'll have, mm. right? A lot of, well, a lot of what we're doing is in digital work now. Okay. I don't want to focus so much on, on, on digital health innovations that we do it to the disservice of recognizing the importance of this, of face-to-face, right. -face, human human-to-human interactions right. in mental health, which is incredibly powerful. But having said that, you know, in, in a country like Canada, for example, where we can't get good services, you know, in real time to people across this huge swath of mm. geography we have, right. it's really important for us to think about digital health, health interventions, right. online interventions. So a lot of our work has been in that area and we'll, that will continue. Okay. And it's growing apace, right? If we look at the innovations around machine learning and AI and you know, our ability to provide good, safe, evidence-informed research and treatments for people wherever they are at any time. Right. A big part of what we'll always do, I think, will be in that space. So there's a lot of discussion right now about the you know, first-onset psychosis versus mm -hmm. bipolar and the differentiation yeah. of the two. Mm -hmm. Does your research touch on that? Uh, we look. We do a lot of research on how to help people who are newly diagnosed um, mm -hmm. to absorb that diagnosis and access good treatments. Um, you know, about a third of people with certain types of bipolar disorder will have psychosis. A lot of people are misdiagnosed, and that's not at the fault of clinicians or at the fault of the people who are trying to describe their experiences. It's just that these are really tricky diagnoses right. to make. Um, and so a lot of our work is actually around, regardless of whether your condition is going to end up being bipolar disorder or some other type of kind of psychosis-flavored condition, much of the stuff you're going to do to stay well is going to be similar. Right. You know, you're going to look at having good treatment interventions. Okay. You're going to address stigma. You're going to try and not internalize what society tells you right. about what it means to live with a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. You're going to look at your self-care strategies. Right. Um, and those ingredients are pretty similar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask, so you have an interesting life outside of the science, right? <laughs> um, and, and again, you know, it's, it's something that's, that's fascinating as I do these um, interviews and talk to people is that this concept of figuring out work-life balance mm. right so that this is a this is a different kind of a life that we lead as researchers but it's balanced off by other parts of our life so mm. tell us a little bit about that what are your hobbies what <laughs> it, need, it needs to be balanced off yeah. for it to and but believe me it isn't balanced all the time we all go right. through periods I think as academics when you know that doesn't feel like you have balance but taking a step back when you come to the point where you can kind of catch your breath from whatever deadline you've been meeting and reprioritizing your self-care activities at that point is vital for me um 
it's funny, you know, I used to try and drag myself to exercise classes and um, mostly hated it. I would feel better afterwards, but any kind of organized exercise wasn't my thing. For me, it's about nature. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's mushroom hunting season here in British Columbia right now, and we breed dogs and we're avid mushroom foragers. And so for me, my biggest self-care strategy at this time of the year is being out in the forest, looking for mushrooms, which has to be very slow and mindful, walking the dogs at the same time, okay. and getting some exercise is kind of a <laughs> secondary thing. So, so honey for mushrooms. So this is one of those things in my life I've never done, um, uh, really understood. I know about truffles. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Is that what we're talking about here? Or are we talking about other kinds of mushrooms they have, and things? No, they have, they have truffles in Washington. I don't think we have them in British Columbia. I have no idea. You know what a chanterelle looks like? That's a type of mushroom. But it's probably, a big one, right? It's a golden kind of one. You've probably eaten <laughs> chanterelles. You've probably been to restaurants where you've been eating foraged mushrooms. Okay. And then, yeah, through the fall, we're only picking about 15 different types right now. And there's okay. some dangerous ones. So you have to do it quite slowly and learn which the dangerous ones, you know, what okay. they look, the dangerous lookalikes. Um, but yeah, foraging is um, it's a great way to sort of sustain yourself naturally right. as well, for free. And so when you're talking about being out <laughs> with your dogs, we're not talking about some little chihuahua wandering on behind you. We're talking about a dog. Like it's, well, I shouldn't say that. People are not going to be happy if they have a chihuahua. But this is a big dog. Chihuahuas are good dogs too. Yeah, yeah they're diminutive dogs. These are giant schnauzers. Though. Right. They're um, about 100 pounds each. They're a larger breed of dog. They're probably just guard dogs, but they're great with kids. And, right. You know. Now, if I understand correctly, I mean, it might even been in our conversations earlier, these dogs are, are, are not bred regularly. So this is a unique for you to be bringing them to keep the, is there something in those lines? Well, you know, my, I met my first giant schnauzer when I was a baby and grew up with one. I came here on my first postdoc to UBC on a plane with a Bengal cat and two giant schnauzers in the hold of the plane. I've had them since well, I was a teenager. So that was okay. part of my you know, choice of Canada. It's a wonderful country to live with, with animals. Okay. All right. and, <laughs> and, you're, and do you breed them competitively? or just No, we don't. We breed every couple of years. It's okay. a huge endeavor. You're really tied to being around the house for three or four months to do it properly. So it mm-hmm. can't be you know, that frequent for us. And we, um, you know, we breed for health and we breed for great, great family dogs. Okay. Oh, wonderful. Sheer pleasure. <laughs> so if you were, you know, watching this and you were thinking about a career in science. Not dog uh, breeding. Not dog breeding. <laughs> well, you know, it's the balance that goes along with all of it, right? So if you had an opportunity, you were talking to a young person, right, who was thinking about this as a career, and perhaps you know, particularly a woman thinking about a career in science and knowing mm-hmm. that, you know, it can be challenging. It's a tough career, but it has all those rewards. What advice would you give to, to her? Or to them. Uh, or to them. I think the advice yeah. is, you know, that when I look back on my career, the things that have really made a difference during those tough times, which are going to yeah. happen, um, with, were mentors, were, were the people who were supporting me through those processes. And I've been blessed to have incredible mentors right. um, over the years, different types of mentors for different things. Um, and those people that you can lean on during those times, you know, sound out for a piece of advice. Um, and, you know, when, I think when we think about mentors, we often think about people who are much more senior than us. Right. But actually, it hasn't always been like that for me. Some of my best mentors have been, you know, very similar to me in terms of where they're at and on their career trajectories. But having them as people to go to for support, right. advice, you know, just, you know, sessions where I just needed to talk yeah. was really critical and so helpful. Oh, excellent. So listen, there's a question I ask everybody at the end of these interviews. Um, it's a bit of your sense. So if you could go back and talk to anybody, mm. 
Um, I don't care what era, what time, you mm. can have a conversation. Who would it be and why? Mm. Can I have a dinner party and invite a whole bunch of people to that? You want me to choose one uh, person? I know, can choose one person. You can choose I one, but if you wanted to bring a dinner party together, that's all. I'm going to have dinner with two people. Okay. Okay. Um, one of them is going to be Stephen Fry. Have you heard of him? Yes. yes. Writer. Yeah. Actor. He lives with bipolar disorder. Um, he's done a lot around you know mental health stigma. Funny as anything. Yes. He would be fun to I have a saw dinner. At Niagara on the Lakes. So. Oh, what was he doing? Uh, a one-man play. Um, it was a Greek mythology. <laughs> that sounds so, very yes. Stephen Fry. Yeah, <laughs> I would love to have him. And you know who else I'd invite to dinner? It would be my Polish grandfather. You okay. know, I think I'm the last person carrying my name at this point, and sometimes I think I think he'd be proud. And I would yeah. like, I would love. I don't know how he and Stephen Fry would get on. That would, but you know, right. Polish. It would probably make for an interesting dinner. Yes. The two of them together. That's that's what I would do. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining. It's been a great conversation. And I wish you the best of luck as you continue on. Hopefully we'll see you more at the CHR and the award ceremonies. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for that. Thank you.